You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. This Sunday, my father turns 80 years old. The gentleman here is going to bring a cake up. And as he brings the cake, I'd like us just to sing happy birthday to my father, who's right there in the back. Stand just for a moment, Dad, so they can see where you are. There he is. And I wish you'd join me. <clears throat> the cake is just about big enough for me, but I'm going to share some of it with my father as well. Thank you for bringing it up. It says, happy birthday, and we're going to enjoy this a little bit later. Will you join me in singing, happy birthday to the man in all the world that I respect the most? Join with me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. His name is Larry. Dear Larry, or Dad. Happy birthday to you. Thank you for joining with me in that. I want to say thank you back to... Each of you, it's been a really good week for us. It's been a busy week with all the videotaping we've been involved in, but it's been a, it's been an excellent week. We've been very well hosted by Neil and his wife and Bill, who we read he's sick tonight, but he's been so gracious to us. All the staff have been very kind to us, and you folks have been very kind as well. Several of you have dropped me notes, a few letters, some cases expressing appreciation for things that the Lord has done in your life through something I've been able to say, you're right. And in some cases, expressing real pain in your hearts. And I'm aware that when you meet with a human being, you're meeting with somebody who, chances are, has a story to tell that includes some, some hard things, but nothing that's too big for God. And you've encouraged me a great deal this week, and I appreciate it. A lot of wonderful comments. You've made us feel very much at home at our first time back at Sandy Cove in 40 years. I was here before I was born. I never expected my life to take the turns that it's taken. I never planned to write a book. I never planned to be a speaker. I think I told you earlier this week about the first time I prayed in public when I was about 15 years old. Remember that prayer I mentioned to you a couple nights ago? I forget if I said this part, but when I sat down after I prayed that prayer, I remember making a vow to myself that I would never again speak in public for the rest of my life. This was not part of my plan or ambition. I believe it's God's call. It's interesting how the words of an individual can mean so much. As I sat down after that heretical prayer that I prayed so many years ago and vowed that I would never again speak, when that particular service was over, I made a beeline for the door. I was embarrassed. I knew I had made a mess of the prayer, and I wanted to get out of that church before one of the elders in the church had a chance to grab me and correct me while I was very close to the side door, and I, as soon as the final amen was said, I ran to that side door while Jim Dunbar was sitting across the church building. It was a small gospel chapel sort of a hall, and somehow he made it, a man in his 60s or 70s at the time, somehow he made it to the door before I made it to the door. I think God lifted him up and carried him across. Well, he got to the door before I did, and he stopped me and said, Larry, I want a word with you. And I remember looking up at him and saying, yeah, I know that Jesus was the one on the cross. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. I got that mixed up, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
Mr. Dunbar said to me, no, I just want to say one thing to you. Whatever you do for the Lord, I want you to know I'm behind you a thousand percent. I can't say that without getting a little choked up. Proverbs says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Have you had some death words spoken to you? hope you've had some life words. Those were life words. I certainly wouldn't claim that my vow to never speak again in public uh, was wiped away by that one phrase, but I'll tell you this, it was weakened. And I think I became more open to whatever the Lord had in my life because of one simple sentence said by that elderly gentleman to a scared, humiliated teenage kid who had just made a mess out of his first public prayer. Since then, God's calling on my life has been to do some things that have carried me into a visible ministry. There are some handicaps to that, you know. One person uh, just this afternoon saw me and said, Oh, you're, you're Larry Crabb? Hmm, yeah. Hmm, I thought you'd be a lot taller. <laughs> a number of years ago in The Marriage Builder, a book that I wrote first came out, they invited me in a, to come to a bookstore and have an autograph signing party. I had never signed an autograph in my life. And I thought, that'll be neat. People are going to want me to sign their book for them. So I went to this bookstore in a town, Winona Lake, Indiana. Some of you know the Bible conference that uh, was very large there for a number of years. And they were going to have a thousand women for a Bible conference during this week. And the bookstore owner said, we'll have a lot of women coming in to buy the marriage builder. Come at nine o'clock, stay till four for two days and sign autographs all day. And I thought, fantastic. So I went to the bookstore with about four or five pens in case the ink ran out. They had marriage builders stacked up in the front of the store. I got there at 9, and no one came right at 9. I figured that's okay. They're probably in a meeting. By about 2.30 that afternoon, about seven women had wandered through the store. Not one even looked at a copy of Marriage Builder. And how do you, how do you look inconspicuous standing in a bookstore waiting to sign autographs when no one asks you. It's very hard to look inconspicuous, so I spent the day kind of browsing with a couple of books in my hand, looking around with my pen handy, and finally at about 3 o'clock, a woman came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, pardon me, and I pulled up my pen and I said, yes. And she said, where are the Chuck Swindoll books? There are a few handicaps along the way. Well, this is my final opportunity to speak with you this week. We're talking about the topic of finding God. You will seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What does it mean to seek the Lord earnestly? What does it mean to develop a passion for Christ? We've talked about several questions that we as little children ask, God, do you really love me? And his response is not the way you normally define love, no. As we become young men, the First John 2 passage, you become aware of the battles of life and the questions that we ask, and we're not quite sure what to do in this situation and how to handle that relationship problem. We come to God and say, God, will you help me? And his response is, no, not the way you want me to. I'm strong, but I'm not cooperative with your agendas always. And then we say, well, God, if you're not going to give me all the good things that I want right now, if you're not a magic genie that I can say, do this and you do it, and I can call that goodness, if you're not going to love me by spoiling me, if you're not going to help me by telling me what to do in every situation so I no longer have to take risks, God, will you at least heal me? You make me feel good about myself and get over all the pain that I feel inside of my heart sometimes? And his response is, no. I won't heal you with the relief you demand. I'm tender, but I'm 
not soothing. What I will heal you to do is not always to feel better about yourself, but I will heal you to worship me more richly and to love others better. And now our last question. God, will you reveal yourself to me? I cannot come to you demanding this because you're not a God who is safe. I can't come to you getting specific instructions for everything to do because you're not cooperative. I can't come to you for healing of all my pain because that comes later. Well, God, if I can't get these certain things, then I've come to the point of realizing that if I am to survive this world with meaning and with joy, then I've got to meet you and know you better than I do. And that's the prayer that I prayed 18 months ago, two weeks after my brother was killed in the airplane crash. I told you about it my first chance to speak with you. Lord, I know you're all that I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. Will you show yourself to me? Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to John chapter 14. Now, I want you to be patient with me tonight as I move about in Scripture a little bit. By the time we come to the end of my comments, I hope there'll be some coherence that will be an encouragement to you. John 14. I want to read two verses. Verse 21, our Lord speaking. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him. And look at the last phrase. I will show myself to him. God, will you show yourself to me? Yes, I want to do that. I'm not safe. I'm not cooperative. I'm not soothing. But I am disclosing. I love being with you. I love communion with you. I will show myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus replying to Judas, not Iscariot, and says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Really a repeat of verse 21. My father will love him, and we will come to that individual, and we will make our home with him. We'll disclose ourselves to him, to that individual. God longs to make himself known. How's all that work? A few thoughts that will not completely answer the question, of course, but might encourage some thinking that's profitable. Now bear with me as I move in some directions that I'll bring together a little bit later. Question. Can you all think of the times, the three times during our Lord's earthly ministry, when the Father burst out from heaven and spoke? There were three times. During our Lord's three years of adult ministry, from 30 to 33 years of age, that the heavens were torn apart, and the Father, and as I interpret it, couldn't contain himself. He burst out from heaven and he shouted. The title for this message might be The Passion of the Father for the Son. What are those three times? Do you all know them? What's the first time that the Father burst out from heaven and spoke to and on behalf of his Son? The first time was the baptism. The second time was the transfiguration, do you recall? 
and the third time in John 12. When the Greeks came to see Jesus and said, or came to his disciples and said, we would see Jesus, and Philip and Andrew got together and went to the Lord and said, some Greeks want to see you, and the Lord's response seemed to be strange. If somebody came and said, I have a friend here, they want to meet you, I think the most appropriate thing to do would be to say, well, great, let me go meet them, or I can't do it right now, but how about in half an hour? Our Lord's response, when somebody came to him and said, here's some folks outside, and they want to see you, his response was, my, my hour has come. And um, unless a corn of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides alone. What kind of an answer is that to people that want to meet him? And then he says, Father, my soul is troubled, exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Glorify your name. Make yourself known. The Father, the third time, burst out from heaven and says, I have glorified your name, and I will glorify your name. Three times that the Father burst out from heaven. You've all noticed those times before, but have you asked this question? Why at those three times? The Lord did a lot of things, and everything he did pleased the Father. The impeccable Son of God who never sinned, never had a selfish moment, always did that which pleased the Father. It was his delight to do the will of the Father. Lived his life perfectly, always pleasing his father, but only three times do we have the, the father unable to contain himself and ripping the clouds apart and speaking and saying, that's my son, I love him. Three times he burst out. Why those three times? Why couldn't he hold back those three times? Now, do I have you thinking about that? Somebody go like that. Just four people, that'll be fine. Now, if I have you thinking about that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that question that I hope you're now asking, why the Father burst out on those three specific occasions. Take that question, and now for just a moment, will you put it on the shelf? And let me go another direction. With me? Put that question on the shelf, and now go somewhere else. Turn to First Timothy. It'll all tie together, trust me. 1 Timothy 2. I want to ask a whole different question, move a whole different direction that will eventually tie in with those three times and bring us back to our original primary question of the evening. God, will you reveal yourself to me? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told in verse 14 that Adam was not the one deceived in the garden, in the original temptation when Satan tempted Eve. We talked about that a little bit last night. Paul says here, as well as in Corinthians, that it was Eve who was deceived. Look at the next half of that verse. It was the woman, Eve, who was deceived. And by the way, the word deceived there is a very strong word in the Greek. It really means completely deceived. Now just stay with me on this track for a few minutes, and we'll come back to the original track. We're told that Eve was deceived, and we're told that Adam was not deceived. Have you ever asked, what was Eve deceived about? And whatever Eve was deceived about, Adam was not deceived about. What's the answer? What was Adam not deceived about that Eve was deceived about? Before the fall occurred, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, without sin, state of innocence, not justification, 
not imputed righteousness, but innocence. Sin had not yet entered the world of humanity. Before Adam and Eve sinned, in the garden before the fall, what had God... Now, this is the night when I want you to think real hard with me. I know it's the last night, you're tired, this is the wrong thing to do, but stay with me. What had God revealed about himself to Adam and Eve before sin entered the world? What had God known, what had God made known to Adam and Eve about his character, his person, what he was like before sin entered the world? What did they know about God? That could be answered in a variety of ways, I suppose, but a couple things we could all agree on. One thing we'd agree on, I suppose, was that Adam and Eve knew that God was very generous. Here's a garden. Everything here you can eat, except that one thing, but look at all the bounty I've made for you. God was a very generous, kind God. He also was a God who had a prohibition, but don't do that. He was a holy God. He had standards, and he wanted to make it clear, I'm the creator, you're not, and our relationship depends on you remaining in the posture of the created being. I'm God, you're not. Let's be clear about that. I'm a holy God. I have standards. I'm a generous God. It's all there for you. Have a wonderful, wonderful time. God intends his people to be a happy people. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said that the serious business of heaven is joy. God intends for his people to be a happy people. That's the design. Not burdened and cast down and discouraged, but a happy, joyful people. Here's all that I've given to you. Have a wonderful time, Adam. Have a wonderful time, Eve. Enjoy each other in the fullness of a kind of marriage that no one has known ever since. It's a wonderful time. Can you imagine what it was like when God said to Adam in Genesis 2, I want you to take a nap. He looked down and he said, it isn't good for man to be alone. What's the next thing he did? You know the passage of Genesis 2? It's not good for man to be alone. What's the very next thing God did? He had Adam name the animals. Does that follow? You know why I think he did that? He looked down and he said, everything's wonderful. I've done a fantastic job. But there is a capacity for pleasure that I've built into Adam's soul and body that doesn't have a wonderful opportunity for fulfillment. And I made my people to be happy. I want that man to understand the fullness of joy, but I'm not sure if he's quite aware yet of the capacities that are within him for fellowship that only, what well, I have in my mind, a woman could satisfy. So I'm going to have him be naming the animals for a bit, and all the animals were made to pass in front of Adam, and I think by the time that was over, Adam must have felt a little bit lonely. Let's see, I'll call that a, that's a giraffe. That's a hippopotamus, and that's a platypus. Well, nothing here I want to spend Saturday night with. <laughs> Why am I all of a sudden feeling like something's missing in God? You see him smiling up in heaven and saying, Yeah, something's missing, but it's coming. Take a nap, Adam. Huh? Go to sleep. He wakes up. And God says, Look over there. Can you imagine that scene? Huh? Over there? Yeah. Wow. What's that? It's a woman. Huh? Who moved toward whom? Huh. This is history, folks. This is not a myth. There is Eve, ten feet over there. Here's Adam. First time a man saw a woman. Who moved toward whom? Do you picture Adam standing there kind of going? And Eve kind of running over. You don't picture that, do you? 
You picture Adam as a man moving toward and into his woman. God was a generous God. He intends for every nerve ending in our souls to come alive with joy. Adam and Eve knew that before they sinned. God revealed his name, his character, to his people. The serpent comes along and says to Eve, as we discussed last night, I believe, in the presence of Adam, it says to Eve, hath God said, you read the temptation carefully, and I believe that the temptation essentially consists in this, you have been made to believe that God is giving you all that is good. There's something better He's withholding. Somebody invites you to their home for dinner. You graciously, you're very happy with their graciousness, and you accept the invitation. You go to their home for dinner, and they serve a wonderful meal of fried chicken and mashed potatoes and apple pie, and you say, boy, that's great. They pulled out all the stops and gave us a great dinner. You have some friends that were invited to the same person's house the next night. They had filet mignon and baked Alaska. And start saying to yourself, you know, that hostess didn't pull out all the stops for me. She had something better she was holding back. I don't think she's all that good a hostess, at least not as far as I'm concerned. That was the, that was the serpent's temptation. Do you think God's good? No. He's holding back on you, Eve. There's something better he's not providing you with. Eve, the Bible says, was, now here's the point, she was deceived. What does that mean? She was completely deceived. She came to a conclusion. The conclusion I believe Eve came to was, God is withholding what's best. Therefore, he is not to be trusted. He is not good. The beginning of sin was the imputing of God's goodness. You are not good, God. I believe that this, this serpent has a point. There's something better that, you're, that you ought to be giving me that you're not giving me. I'm not going to trust in your character. I'm going to set out on my own course and I'm going to get all that's available to me because you're withholding what's best, said Eve. She was deceived. Now, if Adam was not deceived, then the eternal question, which I'm not going to answer tonight, then why did he sin? Adam wasn't deceived. What God had revealed about himself, that he was a generous God, a kind God, had given many blessings, had given the garden, had given a woman, had given all the blessings of the garden. And he's a good God. Eve said, no, I don't think he's so good. I think there's something better to be had by going away from him. Adam didn't believe that. Adam continued to believe. Now listen, Adam continued to believe the truth of all that had been revealed to that point. What had God been unable to reveal to Adam and Eve before sin? Answer? One word. Grace. The woman has sinned. She's standing now in front of Adam. She's giving him the fruit. Adam has a dilemma. The woman has already said... God is not good. Adam now is in a moral plight. 
Adam is now looking at a woman from whom he's become estranged. She is now moved away from God. There is a break in their intimacy. Disaster has struck in the garden. And now what Adam should have done, as we said last night, was to come before God and say, God, I don't know how to, you handle this, but what I've seen of your character so far makes me believe that there are even more depths to your character that can handle any consequence of any sinfulness, of any rebellion. I believe you're up to the job of anything that happens in my life, including a wife who fails miserably. Adam didn't say that. I believe what Adam said essentially was this. I don't know how else to explain that he wasn't deceived, but he still took a bite. I believe that Eve was saying God isn't good. I think Adam was saying God isn't good enough. You aren't good enough to handle this one. God had no way of revealing the depths of his character until his people rebelled. God, will you show yourself to me? God, there have been consequences of sin in my life. I've been sinned against by some people. I've been in the ministry now in some form for a number of years, and God, I get attacked. Can I be very personal with you? Some of you know this. Many of you perhaps don't. I don't really shouldn't tell you if you don't want to know it. I guess I will. There have been two books written to expose me to the Church of Jesus Christ as a heretic. There was a pastor's conference held about two years ago in which a leader at the pastor's conference got up. If you have any of Larry Crabb's books in your church, get up publicly and apologize for having heretical books in your church library. I'm not complaining or saying I've got it worse than you. But I'm saying those things sting just a little bit. And something inside of me gets rather angry. And the people that have written the books against me have never spoken to me. Never called me and said, we understand you to be teaching this. Is this what you're saying? Any public speaker knows that if you believed half of what you're thought to believe, you really are a heretic. We live in a sinful world. Where Christians aren't real nice to each other sometimes. We live in a sinful world where when we are persecuted, from our point of view, without due cause, we don't respond sometimes in a very godly way. We're a sinful people. God, you up to handling all this? You good enough for this one? What consequences of sin are you living with in your life tonight? I can recall years ago when our two boys were very little, maybe four and six, we went away on a vacation just for a weekend, a weekend vacation, and I can't recall the details of it, but I can recall that I got very, very angry at my older boy, then maybe six or seven years old. I was furious with him. I have no idea what about. I was a terrible dad at that moment. Overall, I've been a pretty good dad. That moment, I was a wretched father. Do you know, for a day, my boy avoided me out of terror. What do you have to live with? Some things worse than that. God, are you good enough to handle even that? I know you're good, but are you good enough for that? That's sin. As a psychologist, I have some understanding of the power a father has to damage his child. And I've damaged my boy. 
And God, as I see certain patterns in his life, is that because of what I did back when he was six and seven? Is that because when he was 12 and I lost my temper again? And some other times in between. Is that because of... Is that because I was with him too much? I was with him too little? God, I don't know how to do all this. You ever feel like that? I was on Kevin Lehman's radio show. You know Kevin Lehman, the birth order writer? He had a radio show and I was on that live radio show. I think he regretted it was live. He said to me on the air, if you could go back and do your child training all over again, what's the one change you'd make? I said, um, that's easy. I'd spend less time with my kids. He cut to a commercial very, very quickly. And I said, no, I want to explain that. That sounds a little weird. I want to explain that. I think the mistake I made as a father was I think I, um, I, think I worked too hard as a father, to tell you the truth. I was determined determined to see to it that my kids were going to be all that they ought to be. And they, we had devotions every Sunday afternoon. We had an hour and a half of Bible lesson. I had an overhead projector. I bought it for the purpose. My kids had Old Testament survey and New Testament survey Sunday afternoon for two hours. I did everything with my kids. Got the news about 15 years ago that a man that meant a great deal to me when I was in graduate school had left his wife. He was now divorced. And I thought, how can this be? How can godly people do such things? And I went home that night determined that my kids weren't going to turn out like that. We had devotions that night like we hadn't had in a long time. And I concluded those devotions by turning to my kids and saying to both of them, they were eight and ten, thereabouts, I said, you too will live for God. I was too involved with my kids. I didn't relax enough. Oh, parents, relax a little bit. Read a few less books on child training. I've... God, are you good enough to handle all this? Or must I look at you and say, I'm not sure if your grace is sufficient to handle all the consequences of sin in my home. So I'm going to start figuring it all out. Understanding all about what's happening to my kids and making up to them for it here and doing it right there. And pretty soon you get so tongue-tied you can't even relate normally to people. You ever been there? God, are you good enough to handle consequences of sin? My wife just sinned. God, I don't understand how that works. I don't know what's going on here, God. We've had paradise up until now, and the serpent beguiled her. Yes, I should have spoken up, and I didn't. I made a mess already, too, I suppose. But she's already taken a bite. Now what do I do, God? I'll take a bite, too, and see if that'll help. Maybe we'll get together at least. God, are you good enough? Eve said, you're not good. Adam said, you're not good enough. And God's heart broke. Because he is good enough. He's good enough to straighten out the mess in my family. He's good enough to take the errors that I've made as a father and work in my children's lives. My problem is to trust that he's good enough. And God, ever since that moment that Adam sinned, God had a plan that got kicked into action. And the plan was what? To reveal what he's really like. I'm good, and I'm good enough, and I want you to have confidence in me. From that point on, the plan was set in motion. The promise was made in Genesis 3. The plan began a little bit later. Abram was called. 
The Jewish nation was formed under Moses. The plan continued. The tabernacle was set up. The Jewish nation continued. The dynasty was set in place, the Davidic dynasty. The priesthood was established. All was being put in motion in Old Testament days for what single purpose? For God to show everybody just how good He really is. Why did Jesus come? To save His people from their sins? Of course, that's a correct answer. But I'll give you an answer that I think is even more fundamental. He came to let people know what the Father's like. He's good enough. No one's seen the Father. No one's seen God any time, John 1 says. But Jesus Christ has made Him known. Can you imagine the Father, ever since the day Adam sinned, longing to let people know how good He is in a way that would draw people to trust Him as good and as good enough no matter what happens in life, no matter what failures you're looking back on in your family, no matter what health problem that ultimately is a consequence of sin, not that your sin is responsible for the health problem, but if there were no sin in the world, there'd be no disease. Everything bad is a result of the fact sin came into the world. God, you're good enough for that? And God says, I am, and I'm going to find a way to show you. And then turn to Mark chapter 1. And then Jesus came. How long had it been since Adam had sinned? A fair number of years. And no one, since Adam's sin had revealed the Father's character fully. No one. And the Father looks down, and there's Jesus. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John of the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, another parallel passage says that he was praying as he came up out of the water. Jesus saw heaven being torn open. Folks, there's passion in that. The Father couldn't contain Himself. He rips open the heavens and He looks down on His Son as, a spirit, as the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven and says, You're My Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Why? You're going to make known to people what I'm like. And My people are going to develop a confidence in My name so that no matter what happens, they're going to rest in My character and continue on with meaning and joy. You're going to let him know what I'm like, what Adam couldn't see until he sinned, what no one has believed ever since because of their sin. Now you're going to make it known. I'm excited about you. Our older son is a white-haired blonde. At least he was real white-haired when he was younger, a little darker now. And he was an exceptional athlete, still is. And one of his sports as a kid was soccer. One day we were at a soccer match. And I was standing on the side of the field where our team was had their bench, and there were maybe 20 or 30 assorted parents watching their 10, 11, 12-year-old kids out there kicking a ball around. And my boy was very noticeable because of his almost white hair, and he was the fastest kid on the, on the whole field. He was a, he's a great athlete. And he had been making some pretty good plays, and people had begun noticing him a little bit. And at one point, the ball was down on the other side of the field where it shouldn't have been, and my boy made a steal, and he emerged from the pack, kicking that ball all the way down the field so fast nobody could catch him, and he just like a white streak just ran down that field and scored a goal. 
And I heard some other man next to me saying, Who's that kid? Know what I said? That's my boy. Do you hear the father? That's my boy. With you, I'm well pleased. Why? Genetics show. The only begotten of the Father, full of what the Father is full of. Grace and truth, the express image of the Father, Hebrews 1 tells us. He spoke in former times in a variety of ways, but now he speaks through his Son. Do you want to know God? You've got to know the Son. There's no other way. You're my well-beloved Son. You, I'm so pleased. That's my boy. Father's excited. Now turn to Mark chapter 9. Let's look at the second time the Father spoke. God, I don't think you're very good. And Given what's happened in my life, I'm not sure if you're good enough. I better look out for myself here and figure out some way to handle my life. Let's see. I've got a good brain. I'm good looking. I've got this talent. I've got that talent. I can hide certain things from myself. I can pretend certain ways good. I think between you, God, and my defense mechanisms, I can survive life. No, I'm good enough. No, I want you to see it. The Father bursting wanting his people to see his character so that we trust alone in his name. I'm a jealous God, he says. The word is passionate. I'm a passionate, jealous God. I want you to trust in me. My glory I will share with none other because nobody else has my character. I alone am God. Trust in me. I'm good enough to handle anything. Is your life a mess? Trust in me. Are things falling down the tubes yet? Yeah, looks like it's an impossible situation. Trust in me. Well, you know what you feel like. Sometimes you feel like, well, it doesn't work. I remember my brother and I riding in a car together some years ago and Christian radio was on and some hymn, song came on. And I forget the song exactly, but the idea was just when things seemed hopeless, my God delivered again. And Bill was going through a tough time at that moment. As he heard that song, he reached up, he was driving, he, with a vicious twist of the knob, he turned it off and he said, that's just not true. We talked at length within an hour. Bill and I were in tears together. Saying, you know, it's pretty hard to trust God when it doesn't look like He's coming through. And the Father, with a heart full of joy and compassion, is longing to reveal to me what Bill now knows fully. I'm good enough. Doesn't seem that way. Hang on. Oh, God, hang on this long. God, I'll hang on. But if I trust, that obligates you to solve my problem with them. Let's see, I'll give you two months. God, it's been eight years. Oh, trust me. My purposes ripen slow in your eyes. Look at Jesus. He's made me known. The transfiguration. For six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, Mark 9 and verse 2, with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses. Interesting selection of Old Testament characters. Why those two? And they were talking with Jesus. 
the Luke account of the transfiguration tells us what they were talking about. Do you know what it was? Do you all know what they were talking about during the transfiguration? Most of you know it, don't you? What was it? His decease. Why? Why? Why were Elijah and Moses and Jesus having a conversation about Jesus' death? Why didn't they discuss the parting of the Red Sea? Why didn't they discuss the time on Mount Carmel when Baal was made to look bad? Because in those situations, God was revealed, but not as fully. Peter, verse 5, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. He was scared to death. And of course, when Peter didn't know what to say, he always said something. And by the way, that's why he was chosen leader of the band. At least he didn't stay quiet like Adam. <laughs> Peter always put his foot in his mouth. He always laughed about that. At the time when the Lord said, I'm going to go to the cross. Remember that? And Peter says, wait a minute, remember a minute. Listen, Jesus, I think there's a better plan. No, no need for that. For the foundation of the world, this plan was set in motion. Why? Because God wanted to fully reveal the depths of his character, his goodness and grace to people. And Jesus and Peter says, we can skip it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because it's Satan who wants to keep my people from seeing my goodness. Peter speaks again. Let's put up three shelters. And at that point, the father couldn't contain himself. He couldn't stay quiet. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Loose translation, Peter, for crying out loud. You're going to listen to Moses? What came by Moses? Grace? No, law. You follow Moses, you're going to die. You follow Elijah the reformer, you're never going to get reformed enough. You don't listen to Moses. You don't listen to Elijah. They were prefigurements. You listen to Jesus because he's going to make known what you need to see. And when you see it, it'll change your life. You'll rest. You'll have confidence. Your life will have meaning. Your life will have joy. No matter what happens, planes crash, cancer comes, divorces happen, children give us problems. And God says, I'm good enough. Trust in my name. Look at Jesus. And our response is, how can I figure it out, Moses? I'll try harder, Elijah. No, 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 no. You listen to Jesus, Peter. The father couldn't contain himself. Now look at John. The third time. Even as I pause, as we turn to the passage in John, the thought that went through my mind, <laughs> I wish I believed what I'm teaching. I wish I believed it with all my heart. Do we understand that Oswald Chambers was right when he said, what I've quoted to you several times this week, that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not particularly good or good enough. Will anybody sin in heaven? Of course not. Why not? Well, I think we have this idea that we have this thing called a, the sin nature, like a diseased appendix, and at the rapture, God's going to go pull it out and we can't sin anymore. That isn't how it works. When we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus. Bill hasn't sinned since the day he died. You know why? Well, he's seen Jesus. 
He's looking at the face of his Savior and he's saying, for the half, the quarter, the tenth had not been told, you really are good and you're good enough. How silly of me to ever worry about anything. Why would I ever want anything less than you? I want nothing other than you. And he's consumed now by the glory of God, by the wonder of the character of Jesus Christ. He's consumed by that. Is sin impossible for Bill? I'd put it differently. Sin is unthinkable. When we see Jesus, we're purified by the hope that's within us. Oh, counselors, some of you are professional counselors. You need to spend time looking at a person's life. You need to look inside and trace some history and look at all the things that counselors are known for. But, boy, you need to get off that as soon as you can and somehow expose only that part of the human soul that creates a passion for Christ. Verse 20 of John 12, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. These Greeks apparently were God-fearing people. They went up to worship. They were apparently drawn to the God of the Jews, and they came to Philip from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And I'm told that the word for see is more than visibly glimpse him. We would like to get to know this Jesus. Well, that's what the Father has in mind. I want you people to get to know Jesus. And I want you to get to know him because he reveals me. And the Greeks came and said, we want to get to know Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And I presume they were excited. I presume they went to him and said, Master, the news is getting around. It's no longer just your people. Now some Gentiles want to get to know you. And they're outside and they'd like to meet with you. What did the Lord do? Jesus replied, the hour has come. I think if I were Andrew and Philip, I'd have went, huh? I I don't get it. But I would guess in the presence of Jesus, you listened. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Whenever you read the word glorified, translate it as revealed. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. On what basis do you hate your life? The idea of hating your life is not to say life is awful, I can't stand my life. That isn't the idea. I believe the idea is basically I give up responsibility for making my life work now and all the things that I count as gain to me now, I count as loss. Whatever gets in the way of the knowledge of Christ is but dung in my estimation, the apostle said. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And again, Philip and Andrew must be saying, well, what do we tell the Greeks outside? We're not with you here, Lord. But the Lord is saying, I believe, these Greeks want to see me. They can't. No more than Adam could see me before he sinned. Now that sin is in the world, the opportunity exists for the Father to make his character known by sending the Son. Greeks, you want to see me? Watch me die, and you'll see the Father. Now my heart is troubled. Verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. You wanted to make yourself known, and I've come to do that. Father, reveal your name. The word name in the Hebrew sense, pregnant with meaning, the character revealed in the name. Father, make known what you're like, what Eve didn't believe, what Adam didn't believe, what all their descendants have never believed. Show it now in power. And then a voice. For the third time, 
came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. I think the Father's excited with a pathos. How am I going to show my character? By giving up my son. Then a voice came from heaven, and the crowd that was there as that voice came from heaven, they heard it, but they said that it thundered. Apparently, they didn't make out the actual words. Others said an angel had spoken to him. It apparently was just kind of a, an unusual bang that they heard as opposed to intelligible words. That's what I take from the text. And if that's true, then verse 30 looks like it makes no sense. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit. Wait a minute, they couldn't make it out. How's it for your benefit? We'll not turn to it for sake of time, but the answer, I believe, is in Exodus 19 when we're told that Moses was about to go up in the mountain and to be told by God of the commandments and thunder came. And God said, thunder will come to call attention that you're my man. The thunder comes. And God, as he says the words to his son, I have glorified my name in your life. Your life is a wonderful testimony to the depths of my character. And I will glorify it again in what you're about to endure out of my heart's love for my people that I'm willing to give you up on the cross, my only beloved son. And by my power, I'll raise you from the dead. And I'm going to show my heart. I will glorify it again. The people heard it as thunder. And God was saying to the people, you pay attention to this. If I'm to know the Father, I must know the Son. And if the Son and the Father are to reveal themselves to me, I must take the incredible, ultimate risk of believing that God is good and that He's good enough. And in the middle of whatever God calls me to, to commit myself to reflecting His character to another. Let me tell you two stories and we'll quit. A friend of mine, a graduate of our counseling program, under a lawsuit right now, being sued by a client of his who, about a year ago, came to his home one night at about 10 or 11 o'clock and opened a pistol up and shot six bullets into their home, narrowly missing, my friend. The police came, took this lady away, put her in jail. She has since sued my friend for being a poor enough counselor to not cure her, to keep her from doing something as deranged as that. been an awful time for him. Spent a few hours with him a few months ago, and I said, how are you handling this? And he said, I'm suffering. And I said, what's helping? And he said, well, I've had three thoughts. The first two help a little, but the third one's making a difference. I said, tell me, I'm all ears. He said, the first thought is that I'm out of the garden, and that cherubim is there. I can't get back in till I get to heaven, so there's going to be weeds and thistles and thorns in my life, and I have no right to expect anything other than that. And that helps some. Yes, this is what you have to expect. Problems come in this world living out of the garden. That's helping to help a little bit. The second thought that's helped me a bit in the middle of my suffering, and this is my attempt at a theology of suffering, the second thought that's helped a little bit has been that I'm to welcome tribulations as friends, not as enemies or intruders, because God's going to work on my life to make me more like Him, and frankly, I'd just as soon not get any more mature right now. <laughs> but I know it's right, and I'm submissive to the Lord's will as best I know, but the third thing is helping me the most, and it was this. 
When the Apostle Paul first got saved, he was told a message from God, show him what, grace th what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you and I understand that our calling in life is to be like Jesus and reveal to others our confidence in the character of God? When things are going well, and I say, praise the Lord, your response, frankly, is to say, pretty easy to say that. And my friend said to me, now that I'm suffering, I have an opportunity that I have at no other time to let my wife and children see that I believe God is good. That helps. One more story. You and I are to reflect the character of God to people, just like Jesus did. And I believe the degree to which we commit ourselves, and here's the big point of the night, catch this, everything else you can forget. The degree to which we reflect the character of God to others is the degree to which God will reveal more of his character for us to continue to reflect even more richly. Someone told me a story at second hand, but I've got it reliably. I know it's true. A Christian couple had four children. Three of them were doing very well. They had one son, 25 years old, who had been away from the Lord badly for years and years. He was living in a, the same town where they were living, but he was living in an old house in a bad part of town with about 20 young people who were into nothing but drugs and sex. That's your boy, mom and dad. That's your son over there living in that house. Your heart's broken. No communication with you at all. One night the phone rang at two in the morning. And the man was jarred awake. And of course, it's never good news at two in the morning. He took the phone call. He answered the phone and said, hello. And a voice said, this is Sergeant so-and-so of the police department. Your boy's been arrested on drugs. Do you want to come down and bail him out? I'll be there. Told his wife. She cried. Put on his clothes. Got in the car. Drove to the precinct and went in and said, my name is so-and-so. I just had a phone call that my son has been arrested. The desk sergeant looked at his records and said, we have no record of anybody by that name being arrested. Well, didn't you call me just half an hour ago? No, I never called you. No record of a person named so-and-so being arrested by this precinct? No, let me try some other precincts. He called around. There was no record. It was a mystery. To this day, not cleared up. They had no record of this boy, so the father left the police department. And he was about 15 minutes away from the home where his son was living in this this reputable style, he decided to go there. It's about 2.33 in the morning now. He gets to the home around 3.15, 3.30. He walks in the front door. It was unlocked, and everybody was asleep. There were kids sprawled all over the place. Most of them zoned out on drugs, all asleep. And there was his son lying on the couch, sound asleep, unshaven, disreputably looking. What do you feel, Dad? Are you suffering there? What's our calling? Answer, to reflect the character of God in every situation. That man went over to his sleeping son, knelt over that body, kissed him on the forehead, walked out, cried like a baby, got in the car, drove home, and that's the end of the story for about seven months. Phone rang seven months later, and it's his son. Dad, this is, yes, yes, I'm, I'm good to hear from you. He never called. Dad, we get together for lunch? Yeah, yeah. When? Well, how about an hour or so? Yes, I'll be there. Where? Where are we going to meet? 
mentioned a restaurant. The father drives there with incredible excitement, apprehension, fear, wonder. And there's his boy, clean-shaven, clear-eyed. Hi, Dad, good to see you, son. <laughs> so good to see you. They sat down, they had lunch, and the boy said to his dad, Dad, I'm a Christian. I've gotten saved. And I don't want to call you till I knew it was for real. God, Dad, it's for real. I'm straight. I haven't had a drug in a long time, and the desire is gone, or at least it's controllable, and I'm walking with the Lord. I don't live in that house anymore. I have a job. Dad, I'm across town in a nice apartment. Well, son, that's wonderful. Dad, would you please ask me the one question I want to answer? Anything. Tell me. I'll ask. Dad, ask me what it was God used to turn me around. Son, what was it God used to turn you around, Dad? Seven months ago when you came into that home I was living in and kissed me, I wasn't asleep. And when you walked out, I fell apart. <laughs> and I said, if that is what God is like, I want Him. Question. Anybody in your life needs to be kissed? You're God's lips. I'm God's lips. God, do you love me? More than you could possibly know. Trust me when it doesn't look like it. God, will you help me? Yes. To do my will and to grow into maturity. And that'll be hard. God, will you heal me? Yes of that disease of self-centeredness that blocks your joy. God, will you reveal yourself to me? Yes, with great pleasure. I already have in my son. You look at him. That's my boy. Whatever you do to reflect the character of God, I'll respond by making myself known even more fully to you. He who loves me keeps my commandments, and he who keeps my commandments to him I will show myself. Take your hymn books, will you? And I want you to sing just a verse or two of a hymn with me. 526. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus? By his presence all divine, true and tender, pure, precious, Oh, how blessed to call a mine. Another hymn that really is a hymn of aspiration. Many of us cannot say it with experience. Some can. But all of us tonight perhaps can cry to God, God, I want you to put me in a condition of heart where all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me, the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. Let's sing verse 1. larger story messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.